an abortive plan by two NBA stars to switch jersey numbers serves to highlight the kind of surprises that plague all supply chains. Hi everybody, I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. When it was revealed that Anthony Davis would be joining the Los Angeles Lakers from the New Orleans Pelicans, the legendary LeBron James announced that he would be gifting his number 23 to Davis and donning a number 6 jersey for the upcoming basketball season. The move caused panic at Nike, which ended up nixing the exchange because it had too much of James's coveted number 3 gear still in inventory. But other supply chains don't have the luxury of ignoring sudden changes in demand. They simply must adjust. How well of a job are they doing, and how can they do better? That's what I'm talking about today with Ted Stank, who holds the Vivian R. Bruce Chair of Excellence in Business at the University of Tennessee's Global Supply Chain Institute. We'll discuss why so many suppliers are doing a less-than-stellar job of responding to quick changes in the marketplace. We'll examine possible solutions such as so-called anticipatory supply chains, postponement strategies, artificial intelligence, and 3D printing. Turns out there are ways to mitigate the impact of surprises, if not eliminate them altogether. So here is my conversation with Ted Stank. Professor Ted Stank, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. I'm happy to be with you. We'll be talking today about situations where supply chains encounter sudden changes in demand or other types of surprises that cause them to scramble and make changes in the product and the timing of the shipping of the product that they're sending out. I just want to get a sense, first of all, from your standpoint of which industries do you think are most vulnerable to these sudden shocking changes that they have to adjust to? Changes in demand really are a pervasive throughout industries, everything from heavy equipment like Caterpillar and a country that is heavily dependent on commodities and buys mining equipment, has an economic crisis and no longer buys equipment, all the way to fast fashion, fast-moving consumer goods and food, electronics. I mean, really, there are no industries that are immune from quick changes in demand, although I would say that consumer-oriented industries probably have that most prevalent. Yeah, a perfect example, I, I think, has been cited about the change in LeBron James's jersey number suddenly, which definitely affects sales, sudden need to shift to the new number in order to meet a huge demand. But that being the case, I mean, this is just, this comes with the territory. This is life in supply chain management. Up to now, in the past, how have companies dealt with it, other than the fact of just shutting everything down, retooling, telling everybody to wait? Maybe that's what they've done. How have they dealt with such cases in the past? So the short answer to that is not well. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Generally speaking, there's really two ways of dealing with it. One is just to expect stockouts and not be able to meet demand and try to catch up. The other, and probably the most prevalent in the consumer industry, is to hit the expedite button, pay extra money to have factories overseas work overtime to make new product and 
move it to marketplaces using premium transportation, all at very high cost, of course, but at the expense of meeting demand. In other words, they've increased the cost of shipping, but they are going to try to make up for the lag through, as you say, expedited transportation. But at the same time, it's, it's, it's not just that. It's also the manufacturing aspect has to shift as well. But I guess that's exactly. just, just what has to happen, right? I mean, there really yeah. isn't any way to get around it. And classically in fashion, since we're talking about these jerseys, fashion has traditionally had very, very long cycle times because, or at least for the last 30 years, as most fashion manufacturing and textile manufacturing has moved offshore, mainly to Asia and increasingly Southeast Asia, the supply chains can be nine months long as merchandisers will take their next season or two or three seasons from now product to the textile manufacturers and cut and sew operations at low cost areas and have it made in large lot sizes to get that unit cost and make take advantage of labor arbitrage and move it in bulk into marketplaces so that it's on the shelves as we hit a new season. I could imagine for an NBA season that's all being pushed forward for a late summer, early fall launch in anticipation of the opening of the NBA season. And it's really hard if you're working with a nine to 12 month supply chain to make that change overnight. There's a lot of investment in materials, in finished goods, in positioning that you can't just spin back automatically. And so it's been a big problem that has made the industry somewhat unresponsive to quick changes in market demand. Well, you say unresponsive, but I'm wondering, are predictive capabilities simply useless in these instances? I mean, who knew James was going to change his jersey number, for instance? You know you're going to need a certain amount of equipment toward the end of a season, but you don't know something like that. You're just caught, right? Or is there situations whereby you might have known if you'd had better predictive capabilities? So that's a great question. And here's my feeling on this. I am an absolute passionate believer in the idea of segmented supply chains. And I think we can spend time and effort in improving predictive demand capabilities using digital sources like social media, et cetera, like that, to, to really improve our ability to predict demand and then use what I'll call anticipatory supply chains to be able to buy raw materials, convert it into finished goods, and put it where and when we think demand is going to occur in advance of demand occurring so that we can take advantage of those economies of scale and keep our margins high. Mm -hmm. But there's always going to be a segment that we cannot predict. How would we possibly know? I don't care what power of a, an AI or an ML or pulling social media data into a predictive analytics system has. I don't think anybody could be able to tell that LeBron James is going to make a deal with Anthony Davis that he switched jersey numbers with him. And so I'm a big believer that top supply chain organizations will have a very quick response supply chain capability to deal with incidents like this. And that probably involves having higher cost sourcing, higher cost manufacturing close to market areas so we don't have to deal with these months-long supply chains. And when demand changes happen, we can respond to it more quickly and the economics work out because we can charge higher prices for being the first on the spot with that new product. 
By segmented supply chains, are you talking about the concept of postponement, whereby you create the generic version of a product and then closer to your market and closer to the time that product is needed, you're able to customize it according to last-minute needs? So postponement is certainly a way to hybridize between the two extremes. So one extreme being, let's say, a 12-month-long supply chain where we're really trying to drive operational efficiency across source, make, and deliver. And the other alternative is pure response phase where I have purchased nothing, made nothing, and positioned nothing until a customer tells me what I want, and then I make it for them. Postponement allows us to take a hybrid of those two, and at certain points along the supply chain, depending on the product, we can finish and or position a product that's not finished, waiting for a customer to tell us how they want us to finish it. And you look at companies like Nike and Adidas are both experimenting with three-dimensional printing in retail stores for high-end shoes. So you or I walk in, we get our foot electronically scanned, and in the back room, they create the molds for the shoe based on your exact foot. Well, they're not building the whole shoe in the back room. They're just building the molding of your foot to fit inside that one shoe that they've already created in advance. Let's stick with the area of athletic wear for a moment and talk about one area that is very predictable and very unpredictable simultaneously. And that is when a championship game is being played and one of the teams is going to win and is going to be the champion. We don't know which, but you have to have the athletic wear ready for whichever team wins, because the moment that that team wins, it seems like all of a sudden the market is flooded with shirts that say world champions. Does that mean that these companies are printing equal amounts of both and just throwing away the others? Or are they just actually holding to the very last minute then doing that on-site type final printing in order to adjust to what really happened? It's really interesting that you ask this question, and people are going to think that we pre-staged this conversation, and we did not. (laughs) In 2009, the University of Tennessee played the University of Alabama in a football game in the third weekend of October, which is the traditional time they play. In Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Alabama was number one. It turned out to be Nick Saban's first national championship team in Alabama, and Tennessee was a middle-of-the-road team. And Tennessee played Alabama down to the wire and ended up losing by a blocked field goal, 12 to 10. I happened to have met the night before a T-shirt salesman, a vendor of T-shirts, who traveled around to different SEC games every week to the, like the big game of the week, if you will. And he went on to describe to me two different, let's call them supply chains. He didn't call them out. I can't remember what he called them for what he sold. And the first product was, he could tell if it was in Tuscaloosa, how many Alabama fans were going to be there, how many Tennessee fans based on history and how many tickets are sold to each school. And he would pre-buy and pre-make maroon white t-shirts, orange and white t-shirts that said Alabama versus Tennessee, October 23rd, 2009. And his people would sell them in the tailgaters before the game, probably 20, 25 bucks each one, maybe as little as 15. And those he had made in bulk, taking advantage of economies of scale, so his costs were low, so he could sell them at 15 to $20 at scale, sell them in high volume. He also had a channel of shirts that were customized to the end score. And so 
you could theoretically say, well, he could predict every possible end score and pre-make those, and that's a ridiculous enterprise. So what he does is he pre-finishes the shirts to the degree that he can pre-finish it. And it would say Alabama something, Tennessee something, October 23rd, 2009. And then he has scouts inside the stadium on cell phones and highly trusted employees in vans outside the stadium located close to the main exits that were taking phone calls from the spotters inside the stadium telling them what the score was. And so I'll give you a scenario. Tennessee was losing 12-10. Alabama had the ball. Time was running out. I'm sure that the spotters were calling up saying, start to print Alabama 12, Tennessee 10. (laughs) Alabama fumbled the ball with two minutes to go on the 50-yard line. And Tennessee proceeded to drive down the field to kick what would have been the winning field goal with seconds remaining. And I'm sure that they said, hold the presses because things are changing in here. And ultimately, Alabama blocked the field goal. Tennessee lost 12-10, to 10, so the phone calls went out. Keep going with the 12-10 score. They may have actually pre-printed some 13-12 to 12 at Tennessee 13, Alabama 12 t-shirts just to hedge their bets, but not in volume and not at scale. Now, the big difference is there's, there's lots of cost differentials with that. He, I'm sure he had to pay those trusted people. He had to pay spotters. So there's higher costs associated with that level of customization and postponement. But as Alabama fans poured out of the stadium exuberant over continuing their undefeated season, they were paying 40 to $50 for these T-shirts as they walked out of the stadium, and there was the T-shirt with the score on. So they ended up fulfilling the need and actually maybe probably making even more money off of it because of the greater profit margin, I would say. Right, the margins, I'm sure, were greater, right. Now, they, yeah. they may or may not have been able to sell them at, at as large a scale, and as much uh-huh. volume as the ones they sold for hours during the tailgate or before. But the ones they did sell were able to get pretty good profit margin out. So you look at a company like Zara, that's exactly the principle that Zara works on. Not 100% postponement, but very short cycle times with manufacturing cut and sew operations located close to market so they don't have to have months and months of inventory, they rather only have a few weeks and they can respond very quickly to demand trends. Yeah, but Zara is an example of the world of fast fashion where you actually don't replenish the same products. By the time that you're out of stock on something, it's time to do something completely different anyway. So it's like they produce a certain amount, they Mm -hmm. sell that, and and they're not going to, in most cases, not going to replenish that same item. Right, I agree. But I still think that even companies that have, say, replenishment stock that they're always going to keep on the shelves, I still think that there are probably some fast fashion items that if they had the capability of sourcing, manufacturing, and delivery in short cycle times, probably higher cost, they could always have that capacity to convert something and be able to respond to a market change. Interesting. And what you're talking about a way in which new supply chain capabilities can actually drive market opportunities. Fascinating idea. Now, we've been talking, obviously, about the most extreme examples of surprises in supply chains, but it happens every day to a certain lesser extent in terms of 
promotions that maybe take off in an unexpected mm. way. Again, stockouts uh, in certain locations that need to be fulfilled. So these things do happen to a lesser degree all the time. When they happen up to now, where have been the biggest disconnects? Where are the biggest difficulties in making sure that information is flowing quickly enough to fulfill those sudden needs? Yeah, I would say probably the big disconnect would be between retail outlets and manufacturers or vendors that that lack of appropriate exchange of demand information or predictions of demand from a retailer who usually has a pretty sound understanding of what their demand conditions are going to be on a day-to-day basis is not communicated or is batched and aggregated over time before it's passed on to a vendor. So the vendor doesn't really have a clear insight of what's going to happen on a short-term basis. So even though a mega retailer like Walmart pioneered the idea of -of point-of-sale data being very quickly available to the supplier or the vendor, that hasn't necessarily been adopted by everybody to a sufficiently efficient level, right? Agreed. Agreed. And today, with the movement in retail towards ever more selectivity in product lines and so ever more SKUs, that ability to predict exactly which FKU is going to move on a certain day has become really, really high sign and is really difficult to pull off. Now, when it comes to technology, you uh, alluded to 3D printing as an obvious possible solution in the future, like on-site, very quick printing of products for to meet immediate demand. I'm thinking about another aspect of technology that might be of help, artificial intelligence. Can that help companies predict better so-called surprises that they might be prepared in ways that they haven't been up to now? And if so, how? Yeah, I think one of the big areas that artificial intelligence machine learning is going to assist us in the supply chain quickly. I think it's going to be pervasive in a lot of areas. But a quick improvement, I think, is going to be in demand forecasting and prediction of demand, mainly because artificial intelligence gives us the computational power to sort through megabytes of data that we've never been able to access by humans before and really find the nuggets of good information inside of it. The other thing that artificial intelligence is going to enable us to do increasingly, I mentioned social media data earlier. Experts have predicted that of all the data that's available in the environment, we are currently accessing only about 8% of it. That's what most analytical packages can capture and analyze because it's digital. The other 92% is considered alternate sources of data. It might be social media data, natural language data, biometric data, weather data that most analytical systems can't access and analyze. AI increasingly can analyze those kinds of data and use them to find trends. A quick example, there is a company called the Scottish Herdsman that sells a biometric collar that you can put on dairy herds and monitor the biometrics of those cows to better understand what's going on in their bodies and increase milk product productivity by knowing when they're sick, when they haven't had enough sleep, when they need different grasses, etc. Again, seeing improvements of about 30% in milk productivity just by understanding the biometrics of the cow, and the cow can't tell you that. IBM buying the weather channel so that we can use weather data for risk management predictions. 
even though we still are unable to accurately predict the weather, even as soon as a day before in some cases, but better than we have in the past, I'm sure you're arguing. IBM's risk management package now that uses AI is able to capture social media data, and it can do things like see that there are a preponderance of Twitter feeds and Facebook posts in a particular valley in California saying, my family has been farming here for 120 years, and we've never seen rainfall like this before. And once you get enough of the groundswell of that, the risk management package, analytics, predictive analytics package, can say, hey, there's a good chance that there's going to be flooding in this valley. And if you have a distribution center there, you need to be finding alternative sources of distribution. So it can't necessarily predict the 100-year storm, but once the 100-year storm is evident, it can very quickly inform you of the, of the implications of it and help you to react more quickly. Is that correct? Yeah, I would say that's where we're headed to today. And, and who knows in the future whether we'll be able to really use that to dramatically mm-hmm. improve prediction capability. But for now, I guess we can assume that chaos will always be there, but we can mitigate it and lessen it to some extent, even if we don't know when a ball player is going to change his jersey number. There's a lot of other things that we can know in creating more strategic supply chains. Professor Ted Stank, I want to thank you so much for helping us to understand where we are on that curve. I appreciate your time. just want to mention that you are the co-author of uh, at least four books, one of which, Game-Changing Trends in Supply Chain Management, I can link to in the show notes to this episode. But for now, thank you so much for being with us on the show. I really appreciate it. Bob, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. That was my conversation with Professor Ted Stank of the University of Tennessee, talking about how to cope with supply chain surprises. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com. I repost a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.